You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. We've said it many times on this podcast, right? Everything has a history. Things that we assume and take for granted in our everyday lives, things we see as fact and static, are in fact cultural constructions, right? Even death has a history. This is our second turn at having a series focused on death. Today, I want to talk a bit about one of my personal favorite things, mourning culture in the 19th century, but also delve into the new book, Speaking with the Dead in Early America, by historian and friend of the pod, Eric Seaman, where he explores the history of Protestant communication with the dead in the three centuries before the advent of spiritualism. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Marissa. And we're your historians for this episode of Dig. So when we talk about spiritualism, most histories tend to discuss it as a phenomenon that exploded onto the scene in the mid-19th century. In an attempt to answer the question as to why it seems like spiritualism seemingly came out of nowhere in the 1850s, Eric Seaman examines Anglo-American death rituals and Protestant religion in early America to see if he could explain this phenomenon. But first, we should probably do a brief overview of what spiritualism is. Now, really, this needs a whole episode for itself. In fact, in our podcast's earlier iteration, The History Buffs, we do have an episode devoted to spiritualism. I'll warn you, the audio quality isn't the best, but we'll link that episode in the show notes. And I guarantee you that Sarah will do another spiritualism episode at some point in the future because that is her jam. It is the best. (laughs) Spiritualism is a religious movement based on the belief that the spirits of the dead exist and communicate with the living through various means. Death and the afterlife is not seen by spiritualists as a static and far-off place, but one that's in conversation with our own realm. Spiritualism developed and reached its peak growth of membership in the 1840s all the way up to the 1920s, especially in English-speaking countries. It was without formal organization, but attained cohesion through means such as pamphlets, books, camp meetings, and most often word of mouth. Spiritualists performed seances where a medium would act as a channel to help the spirit talk to the living, either through signs, sounds, or symbols, or speaking through the medium. 
Perhaps the best-known series of seances conducted were those of Mary Todd Lincoln, who, grieving the loss of her son, organized spiritualist seances in the White House to contact her dead son, Willie. Some of these were attended by her husband, President Abraham Lincoln, and other prominent members of society. According to the common narrative, spiritualism first appeared in 1840 in the Burned Over District of upstate New York, where earlier religious movements such as Millerism, the Shakers, and Mormonism emerged during the Second Great Awakening. It was called the Burned Over District because the fires of numerous religious revivals had swept through the area of western New York and down into Ohio, with new religions preaching ways that people could have direct communications with God. These these were not the Protestant teachings of a harsh God where only a handful of the chosen would be admitted to heaven. Spiritualists often set March 31st, 1848 as the beginning of their movement when sisters Kate and Margaret Fox of Hydesville, New York, near Rochester, made contact with the spirit of a murdered peddler. The spirit communicated through rapping noises or knocking. Friends of the Fox family, Amy and Isaac Post, who were Hicksite Quakers from Rochester, witnessed these rappings and were convinced the spirit communications were real. The Post introduced the Fox sisters to their Quaker friends, and soon word spread of the Rochester rappings. The Fox's older sister, Leah Foxfish, also proved to be a medium. In 1850, Kate and Margaret traveled to New York City with their mother and rented rooms at Barnum's Hotel. They held public seances three times a day. Visitors included historian George Bancroft, who you historians who are listening will recognize from the man famous Bancroft Prize. Um, other visitors included Horace Greeley, the reformer and publisher of the New York Tribune. The Fox sisters conducted private seances for Greeley and his wife, who were convinced they received messages from their deceased five-year-old son. Kate Fox ended up living with the Greeleys for a few months as kind of their own personal medium. Spiritualism in general proved to be very popular. Early converts were abolitionists William Lloyd Garrison and Sarah Grimke. Many prominent people attended seances, as we've seen even in the White House. Many prominent spiritualists were women, and most spiritualists supported causes such as the abolition of slavery and women's suffrage. In fact, spiritualism and the early women's rights movement were closely interconnected, and many women found political and religious voices and even power through the movement. Anne Broad's book, Radical Spirits, is a great dive into feminism and spiritualism if you're interested in learning more. However, by 1860, the phenomenon of the Fox sisters was waning anyway, as other mediums were able to do more than just knockings. So some could have their voices manipulated by spirits. Others were healing mediums that could see inside of people's bodies. So in a way, the world had kind of moved on from the Fox sisters naturally as spiritualism's popularity climbed. It also didn't help uh, the sisters when in 1888 and practically destitute, they had admitted that their gifts of mediumship were a hoax and that they created the rapping sounds by cracking their toe knuckles, though shortly afterwards, they recanted that admission. Oh, can you imagine how giant and inflamed their, their <laughs> toe knuckles would be? Many scholars contend that spiritualism happened spontaneously after the Fox sisters heard the rappings of a murdered peddler. They point to a few phenomena to explain the boon of spiritualism. They look at the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg, 
an 18th century Swedish mystic who spoke with the angels. They also point to the Shakers and their form of spirit communication and to the American incarnation of mesmerism from the 1830s and a trance seer known as the Poughkeepsie Seer in the 1840s. But as Seaman points out, these supposed antecedents were not huge movements. There were only 850 Swedenborgians in 1840 and only a few thousand Shakers. Basically, these alleged antecedents do not explain the supposed explosion of spiritualism. But thinking about spiritualism that way, as a phenomenon or explosion, makes it seem extreme, exotic. Um, But if we look at spiritualism as an outcropping of beliefs already swirling around, we see that it really wasn't so odd and exotic after all. Basically, Protestant Americans had been speaking with the dead in various ways for many years. Protestant engagement with the dead was already existent and present in American culture. Spiritualism just took it a bit further and actively spoke with the dead through mediums or other religious practices. Instead of finding a direct roadmap to the birth of spiritualism, Seaman found Anglo-American Protestant death practices from the colonial era through the early Republic and into the 19th century, rife with instances of speaking with the dead. This groundwork of speaking with the dead um, was laid in various forms and can be traced through material culture. So things like New England epitaphs on gravestones coupled with gravestone iconography, mourning relics like embroidery and hair work, and the prose and poetry of the English graveyard school and Gothic writers, which morphed into the ever-popular sentimental literature of the American 19th century, are just a few examples. Protestants were, quote-unquote, speaking with the dead in a variety of ways throughout the 300 years before spiritualism, quote-unquote, exploded, right, so-called exploded, onto the scene in the 1840s and 50s. Protestantism has been theorized as a religion that does not overly engage with the dead, as opposed to Catholicism with relics and the many saints one may pray to in order to intercede in one's behalf. In Protestantism, there is God and Jesus or the Holy Trinity, which make them essentially one and the same. And that's about it. Seaman pushes us to see Protestant connections with the dead in a more profound way than perhaps we have previously understood. He examines Protestantism as a religion in which the dead are important figures. Without getting into the theology too much, with Protestantism, there is no purgatory, only heaven and hell. Purgatory is the middle place between heaven and hell where most Catholic souls went to experience purgation or cleansing by fire before they ascended into heaven. Souls that were or are in purgatory can be aided and assisted by actions done by the living. So through prayer, alms, paying for masses, intercession by saints, all of these things could help a soul through purgatory into heaven. In the early 16th century, the Protestant Reformation did away with purgatory and the adoration of saints. Protestants could no longer help their loved ones' souls in the afterlife, and they could no longer enlist the help of saints to intervene. There was no praying to saints on behalf of loved ones passed on. Essentially, once a person passed on, that was it. Their soul was in God's hands, and there was no more connection to the living through helping prayers. God had a plan. And there was no changing that. Sounds depressing. However, this bleakness we have described was not a lived reality. 
the material culture of Protestant death shows how connected Protestants were to the dead from the 16th through 19th century, despite the written sermons and books by the elite and religious leaders that preached to the contrary. This connection to the deceased by Protestant laypeople cultivated fertile ground that culminated in the cult of the dead in the mid-19th century. It's important to point out that we're talking largely about middle-class white Protestant Americans within this ideology of the cult of the dead. African Americans, Native Americans, Catholics, Jews all had varying beliefs. The cult of the dead isn't an actual cult. It's an expression coined by semen that I think aptly describes the complex set of religious and cultural ideas that emerged regarding relationships between the living and the dead in the 19th century. And so this is where I kind of geek out because I am just fascinated by Victorian mourning culture. The black crepe, the jet and onyx jewelry, the hair work mementos, etc., etc. We delve into this a bit more in our mortuary photography episode, which we'll link to in the show notes. But essentially, the 19th century had this rich, deep, and I think cathartic way to mourn. People, or at least the middle class white people that we're discussing today, literally wore it on their sleeves by being draped in black with designated time periods of how long you should mourn, depending on how close you were to the deceased. So this makes me think about Sarah's episode uh, on the Huron Wendat death rituals. Right. Right. Um, We can link to that in uh, our transcript. But um, after a funeral ritual, the closest family members, usually just widows and widowers, would go into deep mourning. They did not leave the longhouse and lay face down on a mat covered with fur blankets and without talking to anyone. They could only say good day to someone who came in and that was it. When they were coming out of this period of mourning, they would have their head sort of partially shaved, a highly visible mark of their loss. Right, right. Like there is this designated mourning time and all of these rituals and it is physically marked on you, whether it be with, you know, a partially shaved head, like in the case of the Huron Windet, or draped in black crepe. Uh, you know, clothing for a designated period of time. Basically, it says to the world, I am sad. I am in mourning, leave me the F alone, right? And so to me, at least, it it kind of encapsulates a beautiful way to capture raw human emotion in a very personalized and physical uh, manner. Yeah, it does make you wonder if it made it easier to grieve when you were, when you were like physically dressing yeah. yourself. Yeah, I mean, grief, you, know, you know, you can look at it both ways. For some people, I'm sure it was it was confining, right? But you know. In another way, I think it's very freeing because mm-hmm. it allows you to it allows you to relish your grief and, mm-hmm. and possibly anger, yeah. sadness. Yeah. Um, participants in the cult of the dead imagined they were able to continue a connection with their loved ones after death. Despite 300 years of Protestant teaching to the contrary, participants held to five beliefs. One, bodily remains deserved adoration. Two, that the souls of the dead became angels in heaven. Three, that those souls could return to earth as guardian angels and protect the living. Four, cemeteries were places well suited to communicating with the dead. And five, that it was legitimate to pray to the dead. Both female and male Protestants participated in the cult of the dead in the 19th century through material culture, literature, and lived religion that focuses on maintaining postmortem relationships. 
Participants in the cult of the dead engaged with Protestant tenets that included an afterlife populated by the souls of the dead, but that built on the fertile literature and material culture of previous centuries. One material object that generated thoughts about continuing relationships with the dead appeared in New England's graveyards. After 1750, many New England gravestone epitaphs represented the dead as speaking or being spoken to. The popularity of these so-called talking gravestones peaked around 1800 and represent a shift in Protestant ideas about heaven and an 18th and 19th century focus on reunions in heaven as opposed to a 16th and 17th century view of heaven as a beatific or achieving perfect salvation of holy bliss. So there is a change over time, you know, like Marissa started out this episode saying like everything has a history. So like even like visions of heaven have a history here, right? So this change over time of a, a beatific vision to one more focused on reuniting with departed loved ones. So New Englanders began to express this vision of heaven on gravestones. Many 16th and 17th century ministers urged followers to visit graveyards often to be reminded of their mortality. By the 18th century, ministers encouraged their followers to converse with the dead, meaning have like mental dialogue with them or just be present with them. It's interesting. I can't like imagine that, but I guess that makes sense. You can't imagine what? I can't imagine um, ministers being like, yeah, just like go be with the dead and the, you know, and like that. But but in a way, it does kind of make sense. To be to be reminded. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like, what are we doing here? Why? Mm-hmm. Like, what? Mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. It makes sense. A look at early modern Anglo funeral practices, so those roughly 1500 to 1800, show remarkable Protestant engagement with the dead. Talking gravestones represented the dead speaking and being spoken to. Scholars have spent a great deal of time studying the iconography on gravestones, moving from the 17th to the 19th centuries, from death's heads to cherubs to urns and willows. However, most overlook the epitaphs written in conjunction with the iconography, which deepen and alter the religious meaning of the stones. The same desires that led New England's uh, mourners to read and write funeral poetry also led them to local burial grounds where stone markers continued conversations with the dead. So these talking gravestones can be broken into three categories. The most common type of talking gravestone is one in which the deceased speaks to the passerby. Uh, So one of the classic types starts with, quote, Stranger, stop and cast an eye, as you are now, so once was I. So essentially reminding one of their own mortality. so creepy. (laughs) That's so creepy. Another category are those where the deceased speaks to someone other than the passerby. This could be a surviving loved one to Christ or to death itself. An example of this kind would be this one from a woman to her husband. Farewell, my loving friend. Farewell. This is the least common type of stone. And then the third category are epitaphs where the stone speaks to the deceased, usually in the voice of mourners. So here's an example from an 1808 child's gravestone. Quote, Sleep on, dear babe, and take thy rest. No mortal cares can seize thy breast. That's really sad. Why did you pick that one? Oh. <laughs> That's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, lots of baby death. Let's just, yeah. So 
Protestant interpretations of heaven shifted during the 18th century. We've kind of mentioned a little bit of this um, a few minutes ago. An older vision focused on the beatific vision, right? This is the reunion with Christ. You're just existing with Christ. 18th century visions of heaven shifted towards a focus on reunions with loved ones. So as this happened, ministers and lay people became more interested in imagining the afterlife. In conjunction, Protestant Anglo-Americans wrote and read literature and poems and read news accounts that imagined or claimed to describe aspects of the afterlife. Seaman argues, quote, The image of heaven that emerges from these sources focuses on departed loved ones. It is a mourning vision rather than a beatific vision. In this context, talking gravestones helped represent a connection with an afterlife that seemed more approachable and imaginable than before. For example, this 1817 tombstone where a husband speaks to his wife and his child who died a month before the wife died, both buried in the same plot. It says, quote, Thy spotless soul has flown to realms on high to re-embrace love's pledge, thy cherub boy. When God shall bid thy husband's spirits fly, may thy, may thy fond souls unite in endless joy. So this is the husband's voice. And he's basically saying, like, dear wife, you've gone to heaven and you have joined with our son, what they call the cherub boy, um, love's pledge, right? So you've gone up, you've joined him. Um, and I know you guys are up there. And so when I die, I will come and join you and we will all be happy, you know, and together again. So in previous centuries, when the beatific vision was heaven's central activities, souls were seen as glorifying God. But with the advent of the cult of the dead, familial bonds were recreated in heaven. Yeah. And the be- my understanding of that beatific thing is like, you know, I have asked Eric Seaman before, like, what would that have like looked like? And he's like, well, it didn't look like anything. You didn't have senses. You just were all just facing towards the beauty of God. Yeah. And the- it's like you can't. Like, imagine it in a person's body. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's not so, and I'm just like, okay, well, that's still, (laughs) doesn't mean anything to me. But to people who were reading scripture a lot, probably it had some kind of meaning, you know. Um, Sure. And it's just, it's like, it's almost becoming, you become more than just yourself in that way. Right. You're like. And you almost disappear into the glorification of God. Right. Like when people say, go back to God or whatever, like you're like rejoining this body of God. I think one of the things that Siemens is arguing too is that that is hard to imagine. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And so when it turns this kind of familial turn, it's much easier to imaginatively talk about that and write poetry about that in literature and songs and stuff. Yeah. And probably functions as like a bomb to. Right people who are suffering, right? Right. Um, Talking gravestones reserved some of their most emotional epitaphs for babies and young children, as a shift from the 18th to the 19th century focused more and more on reverence towards children in American culture and Protestant theology. The Calvinist ideas of predestination and the thought that children might burn in hell was almost entirely forgotten by this point, and children were seen as pure innocence and guaranteed entry to heaven should they die. Ghost stories and sightings are another way that some Americans interacted with the dead, whether unironically or as entertainment 
or both. There was a decreasing belief in ghosts from the 16th to the 19th century, but also the widespread curiosity about the afterlife resulted in persistent reportings of ghost stories and ghost sightings throughout the 18th century. As the more educated wrote off ghost sightings as just the beliefs of gullible people, there persisted a steady reporting of unironic ghost sightings reported in a variety of 18th century papers. Yeah. And since the 18th century is my jam, I think... That's... I, I yeah. tried to have Thanks. you read most of the early modern stuff. <laughs> yeah. But I also think... I think that this makes sense that as as ghosts are becoming less a part of everyday life... They become a very sensationalized thing because people are, like, starving for that excitement. Mm -hmm. So, like, me, it makes complete sense that right at a time when they became less believed in, they became more popular in a way. Like, it's strange. So one ghost story that caused a dramatic shift in the way people thought about ghosts is one that I covered extensively in one of our older episodes, The Cock Lane Ghost, um, or colloquially known as Good Old Scratching Fanny in 1762. And I also just did a uh, segment with Vice UK about The Cock Lane Ghost um, as part of their Mystery Girl series, so you should check that out on their YouTube and Instagram um, I can give you kind of a quick rundown, sure, right? Go for it. So Elizabeth Parsons, a young girl at 25 Cock Lane in London, um, was said to be possessed by the restless spirit of Francis or Fanny Lines, who had apparently been murdered, or so her ghost said, right? The girl suffered from fits, and several witnesses had seen an apparition in the building. But the Cock Lane ghost's biggest claim to fame was its alleged knocking and scratching at all hours of the night and day. Many witnesses, including men of high esteem, witnessed the sounds and devised a code to communicate with Fanny's ghost. London newspapers wrote daily updates about the seances, investigations, and hearings uh, that sought to uncover the truth behind scratching Fanny. The cockling ghost played on a desire for Protestant spiritual excitement, and a media frenzy ensued and crowds flocked to Cock Lane, hoping to witness the knocks of scratching Fanny. An informal commission was formed to inquire into Fanny's death and the strange noises. After numerous seances, the whole thing was determined to be a hoax. American papers followed the Cochrane ghost story as well, first reporting on the story in a somewhat straightforward manner and noting that ministers of great esteem were involved in, quote, unraveling this tremendous story. However, once scratching Fanny was deemed a hoax, Cock Lane became slang for supernatural gullibility in American papers. Yet, ghost stories still made appearances in American papers with a mix of belief and skepticism. A 1785 Philadelphia newspaper article recounted how sailors found the skeletal remains of someone on a docked ship. They buried the remains, not knowing who it was, uh, in a potter's field, so in a field, you know, where nobody's claimed the body, essentially. Um, But apparently, the dead man's ghost was upset by such a poor burial, and so the ghost began haunting the sailors who had buried him. The ghost also named George Fenor, a ship's mate who arrived in Philadelphia nine days later, as his murderer. When Fenor arrived in Philly, he found that public opinion against him was so bad that he actually had to write a formal letter of appeal in conjunction with three affidavits sworn before a magistrate 
and a certificate from a physician stating that the deceased had died from fever and flux, not murder. Um, And he had to have all of this published in the newspaper. So even as Fenor chastised those who would believe such ghost stories, he still had to make use of the services of elite professionals like a magistrate and a physician in order to prove his innocence in the realm of public opinion. So in order to help him counter the word of a ghost. Yeah. (laughs) And the same thing happened with Cockleen, too. Fanny's ghost said that her ex-husband had killed her, and her ex-husband had to, like, go to all these great lengths to prove that he did did not not. kill her. (laughs) So it's like, you know, they can say, oh, it's so unbelievable, and only silly people believe this, but it's really not true. Like, it was, it's a bit, it turns into a bit of a, like, a craze, you know? Right. So that was, so Cockleen was in the uh, 1760s, right? So mm-hmm. then this one here in Philly is in the 1780s. So, like, in the papers, if they're talking about somebody being gullible or whatever, like, oh, it's just the Cockleen. Yeah. Yet, 20 years later, they're still having to disprove yeah. the same type of thing. It's something about human nature, I think, that that we still is easy to, to miss. Yeah. We want to believe. And, and it's easy to, to miss that about ourselves when we say, oh, I'm... I'm an educated person. I don't think that's what happened, but, like, you kind of secretly do. Um, I don't know. So, in 1796, a short fiction story called The Dead Infant or The Agonizing Mother. Great. This is great. Thanks for this. Um, (laughs) The Dead Infant or The Agonizing Mother. I I hate that about so many titles back then were so long why did they have like semicolon after semicolon you ever well they usually yeah they usually that's an 18th century thing they um usually would have yeah it's um, why is that a thing why why did they do that i don't know so in this like anyway sometimes i think they just couldn't choose but in most 18th century cases they would have a short one like the agonizing mother and then we would put a colon and have a subtitle mm-hmm. they would just make it the agonizing mother or blah 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 yeah. blah 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 but they you even know? did they still did it in the 19th century too i mean well they didn't really have long. um computers so when they you know like organized books and things they would organize them by author or by subject or whatever but then now that we have like now that we have like bibliographic data things like if you go to like world cat or something and you look up an 18th century book yeah the title will be like four paragraphs yeah and it will include the author and it will include the date it was published written by the author in so-and-so basements yeah yeah on on johnson street (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) right it's it's yeah it's just a change in the way that print culture kind of worked but sorry anyway um, the 1796 short fiction story called The Dead Infant or The Agonizing Mother was published as a three-paragraph vignette in the New York Weekly magazine. It described a grief-stricken mother who sneaks off to the graveyard in the middle of the night and rips her dead child from its coffin right before burial. She keeps the corpse with her at home. Since her child can no longer eat, she too refuses food and wastes away through starvation and grief. She once more pressed him with redoubled force to her breast, again kissed his putrid cheek, and slept her final sleep. This is an example of gothic literature, a genre of fiction that became popular in Britain in the 1760s and popular in America about 30 years later, because Americans are always really behind. What about? No, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm kidding. Um, gothic literature explored themes of romance and death and the otherworldly. But yeah, during this time, Americans were usually about 30 years behind. Yeah, I mean, right? it's different now. <laughs> now we have this yeah. American hegemony thing, but yeah. yeah, it didn't used to be the case. The dead infant begins with the lines, speak, meander. It is the mother's cry trying to get her son to speak. 
She wants to hear his voice. And this continuity with representations of speaking with the dead carry over from gravestone epitaphs or the ghost, the the voice of the deceased coming through ghostly manifestations. So it brings us back to this idea of the 19th century cult of the dead. And when we think about mourning culture in 19th century, it shows us that Protestant Americans were already speaking to the dead through various means. People imagined that they were able to maintain post-mortem relationships with their deceased loved ones. This reminds me of that Faulkner short story, Miss Emily, whatever. No, you know. A rose for Miss Emily. She, like, kills her lover and then just sleeps next to him in bed for, like, 30 years. It's really gross. Ew. Many epitaphs in this period, particularly those for babies and children, referred to death as sleep. The mother in The Dead Infant slips into the, quote, sleep of death. The romanticized elements of death easily coincide with this 19th century idea of the good death. You've heard us talk about this concept of the good death on the podcast before. Um, essentially, this idea of a death is that, um, it, you know, it's, it's akin to kind of falling asleep. Um, Mid-18th century English poetry in the graveyard school of poetry and prose likened death to sleep. And by the 19th century, this language dominated American death culture and influenced American sentimental literature. Sentimental literature um, concentrates on feelings and emotion over rationality, and it tended to be associated with women writers. Sentimental fiction adhered to a separate sphere's ideology, which privileged a white middle-class ideal of acceptable gender roles, where women, or at least moral and virtuous women, were associated with home and domesticity. Men were identified with work in the capitalist market of the public sphere. However, the emotion used in these novels wasn't simply meant to pull at the heartstrings for emotion's sake alone. Many sentimental authors used emotion to campaign for social or political reform. Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin from 1852 used sentimentality to address the evils of slavery. In fact, President Lincoln greeted Harriet Beecher Stowe in 1863 as, quote, the little lady who made this big war, highlighting the profound impact that her sentimental novel made on the general public. 19th century sentimental literature also allowed female authors and readers to create a cultural space for the earnest expression of grief. Scholar Shirley Samuels goes as far as to say that, quote, sentimentality is literally at the heart of 19th century American culture, end quote. 19th century sentimental literature depicted the good death and dead children speaking uh, to their parents from the beyond. This rested quite comfortably with the cult of the dead, where cemeteries became places where the living could make contact with departed spirits, and portraits and photographs of the dead invited conversations with loved ones in heaven. These forms of literature and material culture responded to an aroused interest in the relationship between the living and the dead. People's age-old questions of what happens to us when we die? Do our loved ones actually leave us? Do they watch us? Do they return to us? The cult of the dead addressed all of these questions. Yet, Seaman aptly points out that because the cult of the dead was Protestantism performed by women, it has largely been understudied. Death happened in the private sphere. People most often died at home, where mostly women were in charge of caring for the dying, washing the corpse, and performing the emotional labor of visibly grieving and mourning. Women are the ones who created hair work, 
made from the cut hair of deceased loved ones, and then wore it or hung it on their living room walls. Women were the ones who memorialized loved ones by making intricate embroidery. Women were even the ones to raise funds for public memorial. So think of Eliza Hamilton and Dolly Madison leading fundraising efforts for the Washington Monument that would not have been completed without their their work. Ultimately, the goal of all this, this cult of the dead, was to continue a kind of relationship with the deceased. This desire to maintain relationships with the dead created the environment where seance spiritualism was possible. So thanks to Eric Seaman for sharing an advanced copy of his book, Speaking to the Dead in Early America. You can buy it now from the University of Pennsylvania Press. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at your library. Um, Also, any mischaracterizations of his book are completely my own. (laughs) So thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook. And you can also join our super secret Facebook group dig history pod squad yeah um follow us on twitter dig underscore history and um leave us a five-star review we just super appreciate it yeah it will really help uh us become more visible yes so thank you stick it to the man yep (laughs) and that too that too bye bye as the more educated wrote off go wrote off ghost stories um and a trance seer known as the Pocahipsy, the po- I know Pocahipsy, I just can't, I just, Pocahipsy, I just can't read it, I guess. Um, is it, who actively spoke with the dead? No. No? You read it all okay. correctly. Yeah. In Prodotus, in Prodotus, oh my god, why the f- can't I talk? In Prodotus, I think I have an extra T in there too, maybe. I don't what? think you do, I think I just, okay. in Protestant. Oh my God! <laughs> I know how to say Protestant. Why can't I? In. <laughs> okay. Spiritualism is a religious movement. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> I don't know. Of course, I gotta. Well, is this gonna murder me? Why? I don't know. You just seem like you're mad at me. I'm. I'm just. I'm. Okay. I'm you're like. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Somebody feed her. Okay. I feel like there was something on um, Billy's gravestone in Hocus Pocus that was like that. That was like, I'm Billy. Um, (laughs) Is that what it said? (laughs) I'm Billy. (laughs) I'm Billy. I once was alive and now I'm dead. What? Here lies Billy. But doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh, and the, maybe I'm thinking of what the book said about Billy. Whatever. doesn't matter. You can buy it from the University of Pennsylvania Press or Amazon or the library. And also miss any, or you can rent it. You can, you can check it out from the library. Um, also many, many, any miss, (laughs) what? You're such a bitch. You can't buy it from the library. Oh, you can't. They don't appreciate it. Prodigy. Oh my God. He examines Prodotus. Oh my God! I I don't. I'm just. There's a block. There's a mental block. He examines Protestantism. It's not gonna work. Do you want me to pick it up? <laughs> no. Hang on. He examines Protestant. You guys, take a drink. There's take a drink. Wrong with you? I don't know. I don't. You're losing it. <laughs> It's just, I just have had to say the word Protestantism so many times that I, I forgot what it means. Protestant.
Yeah, see, now you're fucking me up with it. <laughs> 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 Ew, that's so gross. The little lady who made this big <sighs> war. Yeah, right? It's kind of like, oh, go f*** yourself, Abe Lincoln, but whatever. Okay, so... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.